turn to read this morning from our text, a new text we've undertaken, a new text, consideration in this 11th chapter of the book of Judges. And that passage would be from verse 29 through verse 40, which I will read in its entirety as I, as is my custom to do when we undertake a new text. I read in your hearing, Judges chapter 11, and verse 29, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed over Gilead and Manasseh, and passed over Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed over unto the children of Ammon. And Jephthah vowed a vow unto the Lord, and said, If thou shalt without fail <coughs> deliver the children of Ammon into my hands, <coughs> then it shall be. Whatsoever cometh forth of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the children of Ammon, shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah passed over unto the children of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands. And he smote them from a roaring, a roar, even till thou come to many, even twenty cities, and upon the plain of the vineyards with a very great slaughter. Thus the children of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. And Jephthah came to Mizpah unto his house, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with timbrels and with dances. And she was his only child. Beside her he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass when he saw her that he rent his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, Thou hast brought me very low, and thou art one of them that trouble me, for I have opened my mouth unto the Lord, and I cannot go back. And she said unto him, My father, and you'll notice the word if is in italics, it was not in the original, and it reads more properly without it. And she said unto him, My father, thou hast opened thy mouth unto the Lord. Do to me according to that which hath proceeded out of thy mouth. For as much as the Lord hath taken vengeance for thee of thine enemies, even of the children of Ammon. And she said unto her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months that I may go up and down upon the mountains and bewail my virginity, I 
and my fellows. And he said, go. And he sent her away for two months. And she went with her companions and bewailed her virginity upon the mountains. And it came to pass at the end of two months that she returned unto her father who did with her according to his vow which he had vowed. And she knew no man. And it was a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in a year. If you will, stand with me again, please, and sing with me number 691. Standing together, please. Oh uh-huh. 
you'd be seated. This morning we've come at last to these closing verses in this 11th chapter in the record of Israel's judges. Many of you have expressed to me over the course of these messages leading up to verse 29, over these past weeks, many of you have expressed an eagerness to get here and an eagerness to hear what it is that I might have to say on this much controverted text. I confess that the study of this text and the exceptional weightiness of it have been more than usually difficult in my studies and have loomed large in my contemplations now for several weeks. It has always been my method in my preaching to go at a new passage of Scripture in one of two distinct ways. You may or may not have ever picked up on that. But either I give, in one method, I give you a full overview of the entire passage as a whole, and then draw lessons from it. Or, I take the text verse by verse, each in their sequence, and open the lessons as they present themselves in their order. But alas, I confess that in this passage, Neither plan works. And I have been at a loss to know how to open this passage at all. So rich is this text with lessons. So profound and vast is its instruction. So freighted is its record with pathos, pain, and pain that all my systems fail me. And I can hope to do no more than to, as the old folks in my life used to say, make a beginning. And watch as the Spirit of our God opens to us these unparalleled scenes. To that end, I could do us no better service than to begin today with a general introduction and something akin to a general overview. Now, 
having said that, I know that some of you are bothered that I sometimes read rather extensive quotes from the voices of past scholarship. And I can make no other defense for myself than this. That at times in my study and in my preaching, I find that my own words are wholly inadequate. And for the sake of God's honor, I borrow the words of my superior. And to that end, I would introduce you to this passage today in the following worthy portrayal of it. One scholar of days gone by has set this text before our mind in this way. He says, The tragic history of Jephthah and his daughter is one of the saddest in all the Bible. It forms a drama full of pathos and with terrible contrasts of joy and sorrow. Indeed, the whole life of Jephthah was one of startling incident. Driven from his home and youth to become a fugitive and an exile, leading the wild and exciting life of a captain of freebooters till middle age. In the height of his joy and triumph, struck to the ground, struck to the ground by a sorrow of the intensest bitterness, which must have blighted the few remaining years of his life. His whole life was one of strange vicissitudes and sensual events. The stain of his birth was not, of course, any fault of his, but it led to that irregular course of lawlessness and violence which must have laid the seeds of many faults in his character. Restlessness, impulsiveness, indifference to human suffering, which were mingled with many great and heroic qualities. Such was the diversity of this man. Especially we see how the habit of fighting for plunder and for the purely selfish ends of how we see all the habit of his fighting for a livelihood for himself and his followers produced that Lower type of greatness. What a phrase. <laughs> what an incredible phrase. Said that, this writer said that Jephthah's whole experience produced that lower type of greatness which bartered his own energies and prowess for place and power instead of the generous self-sacrifice for the good of his country that marked the career of men like Ehud and Gideon. What, however, is here especially to be remarked and treasured up in our minds is 
that the cup of prosperity and joy which God's goodness had mixed for Jephthah was turned into a cup of bitterness by his own perverse folly and rashness and ignorance of God's grace. See what great things God had done for him. He had delivered him from his life of lawlessness. He would placed him in a high and honorable estate. He had brought him from banishment to the land and house of his fathers. He would filled him with his spirit and mightily strengthened him for his great task. He had gone forth with his army and driven his enemies before his face and crowned him with victory. Crowned him with victory. Jephthah returned to his home as the deliverer of his country, the restorer of peace to the households of Gilead, all glittering with success and glory. Now was he wanting, nor was he wanting in Sources of a softer and tender happiness. His daughter. A bright and loving spirit. Full of affection and joyous sympathy. Overflowing with beautiful pride and beaming sympathy. Was awaiting his return. His daughter. The light of his home. The solace of his cares was there to welcome him and to double his happiness by sharing it. And as he looked forward to the future, he might hope to see her the mother of children who would perpetuate his name and his race and his honor. Such was his lot as God had prepared it for him. His own rash and perverse act springing from a culpable ignorance of the character of God directed by heathen superstition and cruelty instead of by trust and love and of the mercy of Jehovah poured an ingredient of extreme bitterness into this cup of joy and poisoned his whole life. The hour of triumph was turned into desolation. The bright home was made a house of mourning. What should have been years of peace and honor were turned into years of trouble and despair. And Jephthah had no one but himself to blame for this lamentable reversal. Alas, how often can we match this scene by similar instances of human perverseness embittering the sweet cup of life? A nation's career is checked by crime or cruelty or treachery. An individual's life is marred by some act of ungodliness that entails a lifelong harvest of bitter fruit. Domestic enjoyments destroyed by the sins of selfishness and self-willed folly. Bountiful gifts of a gracious providence. Wealth and abundance, opportunities for good 
intellectual endowments, rare talents, or openings for advancement of the possessor. Worse than wasted. Worse than wasted. Worse than wasted. And dark shadows are thrown across what should have been the brightness of a happy life. And then men speak of bad luck. And murmur against the providence of God as if one could sow the wind and not reap the whirlwind. And thus we have, in the words of this scholar, a sad but honest introduction to one of the saddest records in all of Scripture. But backing up now, and arriving here at verse 29, we came to this, up to this verse with our hearts filled with wonder at the magnitude of the glory of God's grace. Thus far recorded in this astounding chapter, the magnitude of the glory of God's grace. Jephthah, a man whose very birth was disapproved by God's law. A man whose very presence was despised by his brethren and banished into the hands of God's enemies. A man whose only hope of survival was by the craft of his own cunning and violence. A man whose very existence was distasteful, if not downright deplorable, to any sanctified mind. This man was called of God out of exile exalted to prominence, anointed as head over Israel, embraced by his brethren, restored by his countrymen, and feared by his enemies. And if all that were not enough in this record, we get to verse 29, and we're told that he's overshadowed by a special anointing of the Holy Spirit of God. What a contrast. What a man. What a record. Oh, I ask you what great author in all of literary history has ever conceived a greater tale of human interest and divine intervention. I concur with many scholars of old who have said that if only this chapter had ended at verse 29, this would have been one of the most glorious stories ever recorded. But alas, today we come to verse 30. And we read these appalling, if not nauseating, 
words. And Jephthah vowed a vow unto the Lord and saith, Thou shalt without fail deliver the children of Ammon into mine hands. Then it shall be that whatsoever cometh forth of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the children of Ammon, sure shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Says one respected scholar, this verse and the following go back to relate something that preceded the passing over to the children of Ammon, namely, his rash and unhappy vow. This is related as so many things in Scripture are, without a note or a comment. And the reader must pass his own sentence upon the deed. That sentence can only be one of unreserved condemnation on the part of anyone acquainted with the spirit and letter of the word of God. Many attempts have been made to show that Jephthah only contemplated the offering of an animal sacrifice. That has been one of the ways of trying to deal with this passage. But the natural and indeed the necessary interpretation of the words show that he had a human victim in mind. He could not expect any but a human being to come forth from the doors of his house, nor could any but a human being come forth and, quote, meet him, which was a common phrase spoken only of men. Obviously, in the greatness of his danger and the extreme hazard of his undertaking, he thought to propitiate God's favor by a terrible and extraordinary vow. But if we ask how Jephthah came to have such erroneous notions of the character of God, the answer is not far to seek. Jephthah was, after all, in the words of Scripture, the son of a strange woman. Probably, as we've seen before, she was a she was a Syrian. He had passed away many years of his life as an exile in Syria. Now it is well known that human sacrifices were frequently practiced in Syria, as they were also among the Ammonites who made their children pass through the fire to Molech. And it cannot surprise us that a man brought up as Jephthah at the hand head of a band of Syrian outlaws should have the common Syrian notion of the efficacy of such a vow in great emergencies. His language indeed, his language about Jehovah and Chemosh in verse 24 seemingly savored of a semi-heathenism. 
Nor is it any valid objection that we're told in verse 29 that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. The phrase does not mean that thenceforth he was altogether under the guidance of the Holy Spirit so that all that he did was inspired by the Spirit of truth and wisdom, but that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him with extraordinary strength and power for the task he was appointed to leading Israel into battle against Ammon. And so we see that under the heat, under the heat of carnal fires, and flush with the passions of impending war, this otherwise good man falls back on his lower nature and bursts out with this appalling vow. Lord, give me victory in this war and I will sacrifice the first thing that walks out of my door when I return and give it as a burnt offering. Thinking in his foolish and ignorant heart, to have secured the grant of Jehovah's help, he sallies forth, no doubt inflamed with passion and consumed with zeal. He charges out. Every nerve in him is charged with passion. Every fiber of muscle is tense with fever. Every thought of his mind is consumed with the business that he knows best. War and killing. We read in verse 32, So Jephthah passed over under the children of Ammon to fight against them. And the Lord delivered them into his hands. <laughs> Oh, when I read this text, I'm smitten every time. Oh, how we sit in wonder at the feet of divine inspiration. All that this record contained in verse 1 through 31, all of those scenes of preparation to which we've given our attention over the past several weeks, all of that anticipation and anxiety that brought us to this verse, all is brought to an explosive crescendo in one tiny verse with an almost anticlimactic simplicity, but a gloriously divine brevity our God simply says, Jephthah passed over and the Lord delivered them into his hands. <laughs> Just like that. That's it. Just like that. I said it's all brought to an explosive crescendo in one tiny verse with almost an anticlimactic simplicity, but a glorious divinely breath, divine brevity. One simple verse, and that's it. 
Oh, it's just that simple. Could I draw your heart to a lesson here? See here, our God experiences no exertion in bringing whole nations to their knees. It requires no elaborate description. There's no great effort expressed or indicated. His is no strained effort in toppling kingdoms and crushing men devices. In a simple word, in the 31st verse, after all, after the 32nd verse, after all that preceded it, he simply said, Jephthah passed over and the Lord gave it to him. Hallelujah. Oh, does that not stir your heart to see and sense the power of our God? No effort is indicated here. <laughs> God just did it. Hallelujah. What a contemplation for our hearts this morning. Whatever Ammonite nation we're facing in our own hearts and our own experience, what a blessed word this 32nd verse brings to our heart about the power of our just the remedy of it. You remember it in Genesis chapter 1? The power of our God, He spoke worlds of it. Oh, He just said, let there be stars, planets, galaxies, and there was. He said, let the waters be separate. And they were. He said, let the earth bring forth all the animal kingdom, the plant kingdom. Let it be. And it was. Hallelujah. Just that simple. Just that simple. Could I impress you this morning with just how simple, <laughs> just how simple it is for our God to create worlds? Just that simple. He just did it. No wonder we have that blessed testimony of our dear brother Job in chapter 37, verse 10. By the breath of God, frost is given. And by the breath, by, at the breath of the waters is straightened. Also by watering heat. Where at the thick clouds he scattered his bright cloud, and it's turned round about by his counsels. They may do whatsoever he commanded them upon the face of the world and the earth. He causeth it to come, whether for correction or for his land or for mercy. Oh, such is the power of our God. Hearken unto this, O Job, stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. Doth thou know when God disposed them and caused the light of his cloud to shine? Dost thou know the balancing of the cloud and the wondrous works of him which is perfect in knowledge? How many garments are warm? How thy garments are warm when he quieted the earth by the south wind? 
hast thou with him spread out the sky which is strong and as a molten looking glass? A molten looking glass. Boy, that'd be a great sermon title, wouldn't it? Hallelujah. Just spend some time investigating that molten looking glass. Oh, Job, hast thou with him spread out the heavens which is strong and as a molten looking glass? Teach us what we shall say unto him, for we cannot order our speech by reason of darkness. Shall it be to him that I speak? If a man speaks, surely he shall be swallowed up. Now men see not the bright light which is in the clouds. Fair weather. Oh, verse 23, touching the Almighty, we cannot find him out. He's excellent in, he's excellent in power. And in judgment and in plenty of justice, he will not afflict. <laughs> I can't even explain him, he says. Oh, and then in chapter 38, look at verse 3. Gird up now thy loins like a man. Frown him into thee and answer thou me, God says. Where wast thou when I laid the foundation of the earth? Declare, if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who has stretched the line upon it, whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Do you know? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Oh, or who shut up the sea with doors when did it break forth if that, uh, when it break forth as if I, it had issued out of the womb. When I made the cloud the garment thereof and thick, thick darkness a swaddling band for it and break up for it my decreed places and set bars and doors and said, Hitherto shalt thou come, but no further. And here, here shalt thy proud ways be stayed. Hast thou commanded the morning since thy days, and caused the day spring to know its place? And on and on he goes. What's he doing? Oh, he's describing the power of our God. I think sometimes we fear and tremble. Saints today forget the power of our God. Isaiah talked about it in chapter 40 and verse 12. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, meted out the heavens with a span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance. Who did that? He did that. He did that. Oh, who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, with whom took he counsel, who instructed him? Who taught him? Who showed him? Who showed him the way of wisdom? Listen, verse 15. Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket. I studied that text. I preached on this text one time some years ago. There's a beautiful imagery right there. You drop a bucket down in a well. I did as a boy. We used to pull, get our water like that. Drop that bucket down in the well and you winch it up. And as it's winching up, it splashes. Some of it splashes out of that bucket. And as it keeps coming up, all of that washes off the side of the bucket. You get it up top. And there's just this one little drip. Drips off the bottom of that bucket. 
prophet said, all the nations of the world are nothing more to him than that little drop falling off that bucket. What a God! Hallelujah! What a God! Hallelujah! He said all the nations are counted as a small dust of the balance. You wouldn't even you wouldn't even blow it off the balance. It's not going to affect anybody. Hallelujah. He taketh up the aisles as a very little thing. What am I talking about this morning? I'm talking about just verse 32 in our text. The simplicity of the statement. God, God, our God delivered them into his hands. That's all. That's all he does. Oh, in our text, in one single verse, the complete demise of an entire nation is recorded as if it were no more than the announcement of a passing trifle in daily life. The Lord delivered into his hands. <laughs> well, hallelujah, such is the power of our God. You remember what that revived king said, Nebuchadnezzar, in chapter 4. In verse 34, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven. Mine understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High. And I prayed and honored him living forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he knew it according to his will. In the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What doest thou? Such is the power of our God. Oh, I said at the beginning of this, first we get to verse 32, our hearts are made to just fall down at the foot of his throne and worship him for his greatness. Jephthah crossed over and the Lord gave it to him. <laughs> Hallelujah. And so it is that we pause here in this 32nd verse of our passage to bathe our souls in the warmth of the glory of our God's majesty and in his infinite ability to convey that majesty to us, not by prolixity, herbosity, but by his majestic brevity. <laughs> oh, his power to put an ocean of truth in a single drop of vocabulary. Such is the power of our God. No wonder they said of the Lord Jesus, never man spake as this man spoke. Oh, bring him, 
you're sick and he'll just say, rise up and walk. And it's done. Bring him your blind and he'll just put spittle dirt on their eyes and they'll go away and see. <laughs> oh, I'm trying to get you to understand this morning the power of our God. But then in our narrative, just for the further glory of his triumphant majesty, we come in the next verse to the details that are given to us just for our knowledge of the extent of it. So Jephthah passed over under the children of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands. And he smote them from Aror, even till thou come to Minnith. Even twenty cities. And under the plain of the vineyards was a very great slaughter. Thus the children of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. I mean, just if you were interested in some of the details, well, here's the overview of it. <laughs> but he's already said it all in verse 32. The Lord gave them. Now we come to those words, finally. Those words whose relating sends a chill of shock and horror to every rational soul who reads it. I thought about this many, many times over the last week. We come to this text of study, and many of us who have studied it before, read it before, heard it before, it's not so shocking. Maybe anymore. But I wonder this morning, can you remember the first time you ever heard this story? If you do, surely you remember how shocked you were when you read that. I said these are chilling words. Shock and horror. To every rational soul that reads it. This is a horror none could foresee. And Jephthah never expected. This is a horror bursting on his soul with more pain and trauma than any flaming arrow or burning axe of an Ammonitish warrior. This is a crushing blow, not brought on by men of war, men in desperate battle, not there, but brought on by God Himself. Verse 34. Jephthah came to Mishpah unto his house, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him. Whoa, this is a sorrow compounded almost to the depths of those sorrows that are known in hell. Oh yes, from paradise in his mind to Gehenna. 
one look. Oh, can I tell you that from from the pinnacle of unparalleled victory, from the regalia of exalted triumph, oh, from the lofty heights of celebrity and honor, our servant is plunged headlong into the depths of human despair and calls to drink an ocean of regret in one moment. His daughter, his only child, neither son nor daughter had he beside her, walked out the door to greet him. I said he's plunged headlong into Gehenna, into the depths of human despair and caused to drink in one glance an ocean of regret. Surely if you have worn this, who have ever worn this mortal flesh have ever known so vast a plunge in the span of a single glance. Oh, from the heights of ecstasy to the depths of despond in one look. Oh, if you would want to know the effect of this providence, just read on. It came to pass when he saw her he rent his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, thou hast brought me very low. Thou art one of them that trouble me, for I've opened my mouth unto the Lord, and I cannot go back. Back. Oh, if I could just go back. That Hebrew word, shub, means to return again. Oh, he said, I've spoken. I can't go back. If I could just go back. I quote it so often and I do not apologize. That blessed Word from blessed Dr. R.G. Lee. This is the price I pay for just one righteous day. Years of regret and grief and sorrow without relief. Suffered I will, my friend. Suffered until the end. Until the grave shall give relief. Small was the debt thing I bought. Small was the thing at best. Small was the debt I thought, but oh God, the interest, the interest. From paradise to Gehenna, in one look. Now, 
for Jephthah. Now, for Jephthah, the record of military exploits means nothing. Now, for Jephthah, the laurels of dashing and daring conquests and victories, all the flowers on those laurels wilt under the scorching flames of shame and regret. Robes bedecked with the jewels of spoil and splendor are exchanged for the black broadcloth of a mourner. Now, the pomp and circumstance of pride's parade turns into the weeping and wailing of a funeral procession and all in a single look. Jephthah came to Mizpah unto his house and behold, look, Look, Jephthah, and in one look, everything is gone. I said the pride, the splendor is exchanged. The splendor of his garments, no doubt bedecked with the jewels of his palm, are turned into the black broadcloth of the morning. Pride's parade and pomp and circumstance is exchanged for a funeral procession. Oh, listen to his words. Alas, alas, my daughter, my daughter, thou hast brought me very low. Thou hast, thou art one of them that trouble. All in a moment's look. I'll have much more to say in future sermon. But could I just strike an iron while it's hot and say to you, Oh, how quickly. How very quickly. Can your joy be turned to sorrow? How very quickly, by one unguarded moment, Jephthah vowed a vow. In the heat of his passions and the preparation for war, in one unguarded moment, he was deprived. Of everything in life worth living for. I warn you young people especially. One single unguarded moment. Can cost you a lifetime. A So what then? Lord helping us, we'll see you on next week.
Stand with me if you will, please. Turn with me to 690. <clears throat> Hymn number 690. Would you please stand with me? Hymn of pardoning love. How oft, alas, this wretched heart has wandered from the Lord. How oft my roving thoughts depart, forgetful of his word, yet sovereign mercy calls, return, dear Lord, and may I come, my vile ingratitude to boy. Oh, take the wonder home. Would you stand and sing with me? This wretched heart has wandered from the Lord. How my roving thoughts depart, forgetful of his word. Yet sovereign mercy calls return dear Lord and may I come my valid gratitude I mourn oh take the wonderful and canst thou will thou yet Forgive and bid my crimes remove, and shall a pardon revel in to speak thy wondrous love, thy pardoning love so so sweet blessed Savior I adore oh keep me at thy sacred feet and let me roam no more 